This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello there and welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Joel Hilliker. The world we live in today has a lot of problems and troubles. There are a lot of pressures that hurt our families. This world doesn't know how to make families work. You have overworked dads, working moms, loveless marriages, divorce, stepfamilies, sibling rivalry, generation gaps, disrespectful children, wrong entertainment. Well, on today's program, we're going to project our minds out of all that and think about what life is going to be like just a few years from now in the world tomorrow. I want to introduce you to a wonderful family, the Tomorrows. There's Grandpa and Grandma tomorrow, Dad and Mom tomorrow, and there's seven children. Timmy tomorrow, Tommy tomorrow, ages 17 and 15, Tara, Tracy, Tony, Tad, ages 11, 9, 8, and 6, and finally their youngest daughter, three years old, Tamara tomorrow. I guess the parents thought that would be funny. They are a delightful family. You can tell they adore each other. Strong, loving marriages among the grandparents and parents. The kids are all well-behaved and respectful, but there's also a sparkle in their eyes. They're quick to smile and laugh. They're full of life. You enjoy talking with them so much, you decide to go to dinner together. But as you step outside to go to your car, you look around and you see that, wait a minute, there's something very different about the world. It feels like you're in the middle of a big garden, but this is the city, the most beautiful city you've ever seen. The sky is clear, no pollution, no stinky smells. The streets are beautifully landscaped, not overcrowded. The little tad gives a whistle and a bird comes right down and lands in his hand. Suddenly you realize that birds are everywhere and their songs fill the air. You can see them flying around and nesting in the trees. You're walking around in a city that has been completely rebuilt after a nuclear war. And you realize you actually have a guidebook for this city right with you, your own Bible. God said what these cities would be like. You pull it out and you read in Amos 9 and verse 14, And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. A childlike urge to explore wells up within you. Rather than crossing a wide parking lot and getting into a car, you walk with the tomorrows into the picturesque scene to search for the perfect spot to dine. The garden immerses you. There are no giant boxy buildings scraping the sky. Instead, you notice beautiful buildings ensconced in the landscape, offices, 
restaurants, clubs, museums, theaters, libraries, performing arts centers. Though each structure is a work of art, it's also functional and efficient. Visitors walk to and fro, chat on charming patios. They take in the views from the balconies above. You are in architecture's golden age. It's obvious that this city and this world is filled with wealth. No storage building is run down, no pergola neglected, no pond trashed. Every inch is knowledgeably designed and sensitively maintained. You notice no horizon-filling parking lots. Even the streets have no cars. In fact, there are no cars in this part of the city. You see people walking and sitting together on benches and talking on footbridges and riding bicycles. Though you walk in reverie for several blocks, you feel you are still in the heart of the world's most attractive campus. And the beauty doesn't rest only in the gorgeous surroundings, but also in the people. Though the weather is perfect, you also feel the warmth of a kind-hearted social atmosphere. You see no age segregation. Children, young people, teens, adults, old people, all ages and all types converse, showing things to each other, teaching, (laughs) relaxing. Laughter rings like bells, mixing with the harmonies of the songbirds and music coming from the buildings and even the people as they walk along. You remember the prophecy about Jerusalem and deduce that all the cities on earth have patterned their design after the capital city of the world. It's in Zechariah 8, verses 4 to 5. There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Whole portions of the city are closed to everything but foot traffic. This turns these streets into plazas. Can we go play, Daddy? The tomorrow children look up at their father. He smiles. Go ahead. Seven tomorrows scamper off at seven speeds in seven ways, joining dozens of other children playing with their families and with each other. One chases some butterflies. Two start playing games by the stream with a large group. Two more join a family talking excitedly about something. Two join a group playing instruments of a kind you've never seen. The prophet Isaiah described it perfectly when he said in Isaiah 51 and verse 3, Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. And this beautiful picture goes on block by block by city block. What a difference from the antisocial city where everyone is a stranger, where everyone inhabits their own one-person world anonymously vanishing into the nameless crowd. This city is a lively family community. The city itself is designed to facilitate and stimulate sparkling public life. No one is a stranger. Everyone is a brother you haven't yet met. You all live under the same glorious sun in unity, harmony, happiness, contentment, joy. There's another 
biblical prophecy that perfectly describes what you're witnessing before your eyes. It's in Jeremiah 33, verses 10 and 11. The Revised Standard Version says, Thus says the Lord, In this place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the eternal. Give thanks to the eternal of hosts, for the eternal is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the eternal. The desolations are rebuilt. Unhappiness is gone, replaced by gladness. Discontent has become thanksgiving. What has caused this transformation? You're reminded of God's prophecy in Ezekiel 36, where he says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the wastes shall be builded. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. There are plenty of things different about this city, but the biggest difference is that human nature is being changed. The couples in the riverboat, the seniors playing ball with the children, the man reading a book under the tree, the ladies serving drinks by the pond, Mr. and Mrs. Tomorrow, they all have the Holy Spirit of God. You're surrounded by it. Hundreds of people around you are all conquering their human nature through that divine power. They're all striving to obey the same law, God's law, and they love it. God's law makes families and communities and cities work. And when God's law is put into action on a grand scale, this is what you see. You're caught up in these thoughts, and then you have a sudden realization. You have no idea where any of the tomorrow children are. People are everywhere, but you don't see Timmy Tommy, Tara, Tracy, Tony, Tad, or Tamara. It takes a second to spot Grandpa and Grandma and Dad and Mom tomorrow sitting on a bench by the road, deep in hearty conversation with an older couple. They greet you as you stride over. I'm sorry, but I don't see where your children are. Do you? Oh, sure, Dad says. They're all within two blocks. Well, how do you know? Well, that's our rule. They're not allowed more than two blocks from us. Otherwise, we'd spend too much time looking for tomorrows. He must see the look of astonishment on your face because he says, even an ox knows his owner and a donkey his master's crib. They'll be back. Well, sure enough, right about that time, Tony and Tad come scampering up. They ask, Dad, can we go with the tailors across the pond and see the sculpture exhibit? 
Actually, Dad says, if you remember, we came here to go out to dinner. Go help round everybody up. Sure, Dad. And off they go to find the other kids. One more comes up right after that. And within moments, the family is all back together. And you're off to dinner. You all head down the street together, through the sculpture park, and up a small hill to a little diner built snugly into the side. The sign reads, Bartimaeus's Family Diner. The friendly host shows you an oaken table in the cozy courtyard. Through the window, you see the kitchen. There, a woman and three girls of different ages are at work, singing as they cook. After a moment or two, one of them says something apparently quite funny because all four burst into laughter. A big, jolly man with a bright face comes to the table. Welcome! I'm Bartimaeus, and I'm so happy you're joining my family for dinner tonight. You learn that it's his wife and daughters in the kitchen and his sons serving the tables. Two more of his youngsters are serenading the guests with stringed instruments. This is one tight-knit family. After your host leaves for a moment, you turn to Mr. Tomorrow. Is this common? I mean, a whole family running a restaurant together? Oh, yes, he says. Families stick together. A lot of us work together, at least part of the time. Fathers teach sons. Mothers teach daughters. Every generation, you have better and better quality because... No one has to start from scratch. Plus, you have a sense of family dignity there in the tradition of it. So this is the way it is in restaurants, in all the trades, in agriculture, industry, architecture, construction, furniture, appliances, clothing, art, music. When a sign says family business, it means family business. The baritone voice of Grandpa speaks up. Shall we bow our heads? All 12 of you bow as Grandpa prays over the meal. Yes, right in public, which in this world isn't really public. It's all in the family. And praying over the food is a matter of course. When he's done, you survey the menu. Everything looks incredible. Fresh produce grown naturally local lamb, fish caught a matter of hours ago. Well, your appreciation for what's on the menu grows exponentially when the food actually arrives. You start with an incredibly zestful salad, fragrant to the smell and explosive to the taste, with greens, tomatoes, onions, carrots, peppers, and more zinging your taste buds. The only dressing you realize is a perfect hint of olive oil. All you're tasting is the vegetables, and you're loving it. And you never really liked veggies. A taste of refreshing white wine from a local vineyard completes the effect. As you eat this salad of all things, prophecies spring to life in your mind. You're tasting some of the fruit of this world blessed with extraordinary agricultural prosperity. The world you remember lived under the pall of this curse for Adam's sin recorded in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to you. In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread. But 
in this world, farmers and gardeners and vintners are digging into God's agricultural laws and obeying him. And that curse is gone. And so is your every last food aversion. Isaiah 55 and verse 13 in your city guide explains, Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. There are no more bristly weeds, no pests, no blights, no pesticides, no genetic modifications. People are keeping God's agricultural laws. So the soils are healthy, soft, workable soil dark and rich with nutrients and it makes the food so much more flavorful and beyond that people are enjoying god blessing the weather and the climate as god says in ezekiel 34 verses 26 and 27 i will cause the shower to come down in his season there shall be showers of blessing and the tree of the field shall yield her fruit and the earth shall yield her increase and they shall be safe in their land and shall know that I am the eternal. Showers of blessing. What a wonderful expression. Rain is a blessing from God given to the obedient. And in this world, everyone enjoys that. Farmers no longer have to wonder whether a crop is going to produce. In fact, their fields, their crops, their orchards and vines are so productive and the yields are so great they can't keep up. They're still harvesting when it comes time to plow the fields for the new crops. It's just as prophesied in Amos 9 and verse 13. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that sows seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. That means... You're eating fresh, nutritious, energizing produce and meats year-round. Straight off the vine, straight out of the ground, good food raised right. We're spending a day with a family in the wonderful world tomorrow. We'll take a short break. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. You are enjoying a wonderful meal in an outdoor diner in a city of tomorrow's world with a large family named the Tomorrows. Great meal. You can't beat the variety of all these different diners, Grandpa Tomorrow says. But I love food best when it comes from your own land. The happily munching Tomorrows nod in enthusiastic agreement. You have your own farm, you ask? Sure, most people do, Grandpa replies. That's a big reason why families work together so often. It only takes a few hours a day when the whole family's pitching in to keep up a nice farm, his wife chimes in. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, Timmy says. Micah 4 and verse 4, Tracy pipes up. So, does every family have a farm? Mr. Tomorrow says, well, every family has a piece of land. 
in the International Registry. It's up to them what to do with it. Most people have farms of some kind, but some people don't use it very much. Some have to sell it. But then, during the Jubilee, every 50 years, the land goes back to the original family. Tommy, who has shown some potential on the animal husbandry side of the Tomorrow Farm, has the relevant biblical laws memorized. It's covered in Jeremiah 32, he explains. That talks about back when the land was conquered and desolate without any people or animals. But it promises... Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the hill country and in the lowlands and other places. For I will restore their fortunes, says the Eternal. Money, deeds, signed, sealed, and witnessed? So there's a real estate industry and public officials who keep track of these records, you say out loud. Of course, that fits under Noah's department, Mr. Tomorrow says. You remember a passage in the book Mystery of the Ages where Herbert W. Armstrong speculated that Noah would be in charge of relocating the various peoples and races and establishing national borders. He was right. That's exactly what has happened. Mr. Tomorrow explains that within each nation, families are given homesteads close to one another. So it tends to be that the further from home you travel the more distant the relations are. He compares it to how God planted the Israelites in the promised land anciently, each tribe receiving its own portion of land. The more he talks and the more you learn, the more you see how family is at the heart of the whole system. It's all about family, living together, working together, learning together. This is fascinating. So you decide to start asking the kids some questions. So what do you think of having so many relatives around? They all respond enthusiastically. Tommy says, we love going over to Grandpa and Grandma's house and Poppy and Nana's house. They live within walking distance of both sets of grandparents. Tara says, and our cousins help us with our chores sometimes, and then we help them with theirs. It's a lot more fun that way. Then one of the younger boys speaks up. You're getting a little fuzzy with some of the names. Our cousin David has three pet lions. We race them across the shore by the river. Pet lions? Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean race them? I mean whoever can ride them fastest wins. The more you talk with these children, the more you realize how rich and wonderful their lives are surrounded by so much family. It's a lot like it was during the time of the patriarchs. Family isn't just dad, mom, and kids. Family is cousins, uncles, aunts, grandparents, great-grandparents, all living fairly close by. There are no generation gaps. There's no teen rebellion. There's no teen culture. These children love being surrounded by such a warm, loving cloud of family. You also detect something else very special about this family life, something a little more subtle, but still very real. You realize these children define themselves within the context of family. They don't see themselves as individuals. 
as much as they do working, contributing members of a community. They're not focused on themselves. They're focused on each other. They've learned how to get along, how to work together. Right about that time, the main course arrives. You can tell that Bartimaeus is especially proud of these entrees. And very soon, you realize why. It's not just the fruits and veggies that are so amazing. Another major revolution has occurred in meat production. He sets before you your meal, a Jerusalem-cut beef filet. You slice into it, and your knife cuts through it like warm butter. The flavor explodes in your mouth. This succulent bite is brought to you by another fulfilled prophecy found in Isaiah 30 and verse 23. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground, and grain, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your cattle will graze in large pastures. You realize that the way the land has been allocated and the way that families use it, in compliance with God's laws that ensure healthy soils, it makes all this possible. Even the grasses the animals are eating must taste better and be more nutritive. At that moment, you redirect your attention to the family. So with the family being together so much of the time, you ask, what do you all do? It seems like they all want to answer the question at once. You hear several things. Play games, go exploring, spend time with animals, learn from books, do chores, play music together, make shows, make art projects. But as you listen, you you also really get a sense of how much time grandpa, grandma, dad, and mom spend just teaching these children morning, noon, and night when they're grooming, when they're eating, when they're working, when they're playing, they're always bringing God into the picture and teaching them. And you realize this is a family, not at all unusual in this world, you're sure, that really takes the command in Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 to 21, to heart. Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul, And you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, that your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children. They don't waste their time watching television. They don't spend their time alone much, all focused on selfish interest. They're generally together. Free time is generally family time. And it's absolutely clear to you that this way produces fantastic fruit. Somewhere in the middle of this conversation, the youngest boy, Tad, says something that just stops you in your tracks. We used to live near great-great-grandma, and then she turned into God. Now, at first, you're confused, but then it becomes clear. When people die in this world, they are instantly born again as spirit beings. That's what Herbert Armstrong said in his booklet about God's holy days, about 
those people who are converted during the millennium, he wrote that they will inherit the kingdom of God, which means they'll be glorified into the God family during the millennium after living out a normal lifespan. So out of curiosity, you ask, well, what did you do when she died? Did you have a funeral? Tad looks at you and says, what's a funeral? And one of the girls says, when great-great-grandma turned into God, we had a big party. The whole family was there, even great-great-grandma. So you still see her now? They all enthusiastically say yes. Tracy says, except only when she shows herself. She looks a lot different now. She looks a lot younger, like mommy. All her wrinkles went away. Tommy says, Sometimes when we do things we're not supposed to, right out of nowhere, great-great-grandma corrects us and then tells our dad. And as crazy as this sounds, Tommy actually seems grateful for that. Another thought occurs to you. You're here with the Tomorrows who have seven children. Bartimaeus has six children just here in the restaurant. Maybe there are others. You ask Mr. Tomorrow, are most families as big as yours? Oh, six or seven children is pretty normal. Some people have more. Wow. So how do you do that with such a big family? Mr. and Mrs. Tomorrow look at each other and laugh. Mr. Tomorrow says, best way to rear trouble-free children is put them to work. But you talk about this for a while, and you can understand why families tend to be so large. Everything adds up. Families in general are wealthy. Money isn't an issue. Each family owns land and has plenty. Homes are bigger, with big yards, nice-sized gardens, orchards, and animals. With the extended family homestead arrangement, there's plenty of outside support. Dad and mom never have trouble finding a babysitter. God beings are also on hand to make sure everyone is taken care of. But also, the larger reality dawns on you in waves. There's no more divorce, no adultery, no pornography or other family-destroying entertainment, no single-parent homes, no orphans, no parents selfishly pursuing big careers at the expense of their families. No child abuse. All the anti-family aspects of society that you're so used to are gone. Even sibling rivalry has been massively reduced, not completely eliminated just yet. And on top of all that, as Grandma Tomorrow puts it, well, family's the whole thing. Everyone has the beautiful big picture in mind. They are creating more beings destined to enter the God family forever. So they have every reason to be fruitful and multiply. And for everyone in this world, quality family instruction is everywhere. It covers the earth as the waters cover the ocean beds. God's perfect law instructing people how to build perfect families. Husbands are taught how to love their wives. Wives are taught how to reverence and obey their husbands. All over the earth, where there are marriage problems, God beings are there to intervene and help out. 
Mr. Tomorrow says the highlight of every year for him is going to the feast in Jerusalem and watching how Jesus Christ treats his wife so he can better emulate that example. Parents are taught how to love, teach, and discipline their children. Although in this world there's far less disciplining, since Satan is out of the picture, it's far easier for most parents' interactions with their children to be love. Children everywhere are taught to honor and obey their parents. Children are taught how to get along with each other and how to contribute to family harmony. And because that law is so universally taught and applied, every marriage is happy and fulfilling. The joy of every wedding lasts a lifetime. Because God's Holy Spirit has been poured out on all men and all people are using it, homes are full of beautiful, healthy, obedient children. Parents everywhere can watch their children grow up right and have families of their own and become active, contributing members to the community. Husbands and wives grow old together in love, watching their children and grandchildren playing happily in a safe, peaceful world. As you contemplate these realities, a great fountain of joy wells up from the very deepest part of your being because you realize you have been taught all of these things. Your bookshelves at home are filled with several booklets and magazines with articles on these subjects. Your notebooks from church services are filled with notes on sermons on how to make your family life work. And now, what an inspiring and heartening, wonderful vision to actually see it in action, to see a whole world designed and implemented, intended above all to build unified, loving families that prepare people perfectly for eternal life in God's family. You look down at your plate, you realize your food is just about gone. So you decide to really savor those last few bites. And as you do, you think on these scriptures in Jeremiah 31, you shall yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the eternal for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flocks and of the herd and their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Well, after tasting the wheat and the wine and the oil and the baby cows, You can understand better why these verses say people are singing about them. To be honest, you kind of feel like breaking into song at this point. You notice Bartimaeus standing over you and smiling as he sees you relishing the food his family has prepared for you. You enjoy it, yes? Oh, yes. Jeremiah's prophecy continues. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance 
both young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. And I will satiate the soul of the priests with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Eternal. Everyone in this world is truly satisfied. And then you begin to think about all the scriptures in your guidebook describing the good health people enjoy in this world. Good food, lots of walking and exercise, robust work, pervasive positive mental attitudes because of strong, happy family life, and again, following God's laws, even his health laws. All of these things contribute to people being strong, healthy, youthful, enjoying abundant health, even into their great-grandparenthood. At last, it's time to go. But you hate to do so. The whole meal has just been such an unforgettable experience. And not only because of the food. You've been talking with Bartimaeus and his wife and children. You feel like you're part of his family now. And the fellowship around the table has been rich and wonderful. Your belly is full. Your heart is swelling with joy and satisfaction. Your cheeks almost hurt from laughing. You think of Proverbs 17 and verse 1, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And you realize that in this world, you don't need one or the other. This is a place of family feasting and family love. At that point, you say goodbye to the tomorrows, this family of the future that in a single day you've grown to love completely. The children all give you warm, hearty hugs and holy kisses. Then the parents and grandparents do the same. Then little Tad gives a whistle and a bird comes down and lands in his hand and he offers it to you. It hops right over and just sits down in your hand. And then as this lovely family walks away and out of sight, it's as if this gentle little life represents this entire beautiful world, a world that soars and a world that sings, a living, pure creation straight from the marvelous mind of the perfect creator God. It's time for today's Last Word. It is exciting to saturate your mind and your imagination in the prophecies of God's future world. The Bible is full of tantalizing details about that world, and it's expounded on in Herbert W. Armstrong's wonderful World Tomorrow book, the last chapter of Mystery of the Ages, our Bible Correspondence Course, many articles in the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine and our sister magazine, Royal Vision. We know all kinds of detail about the technology, the transportation, the recreation, the city life, the country life, the cultural life. 
We know about the food, the environment, the weather, the animal world, the government, the laws, the religion, the language, the commerce. And above all, we know what it all points to, and that is the family life. Why did God record all this for us? And why does he give us the annual week-long festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, each fall that specifically pictures that 1,000-year period and command his people to congregate together to celebrate this feast? Because this is how he wants us to live today in our physical families and within the spiritual family, the Church of God. God wants us to get our minds into his future world and then do all we can to conform our lives to that today. He's given us a law that works. He's given us a detailed vision of how beautiful it is when it's put into action. He wants us to use it, to live it, to obey it, so that in just a few years, we can teach it. Look at your family life and ask yourself, what do I do that I can't take into the kingdom of God? Don't say, I want the kingdom of God and I'm taking my baggage with me. What do I do that I can't take into the kingdom of God? Whatever it is, what can you do to get rid of that right now? Think about this both in your physical family and with your spiritual family. How close are you getting to the way that people will be living in the kingdom of God? Are we loving each other the way that we should? Are we putting the family before ourselves? Are we treating each other like the royalty we truly are? What do I do that I can't take into the kingdom of God, and how can I get rid of that? Mr. Armstrong wrote this in an article in the Good News in 1981. The kingdom is the divine family of God. If we cannot live as a family should live, according to God's spiritual law, now, while in God's church, we simply won't make it into God's kingdom, which is his divine family. Now, please, please, dear brethren, heed this. Many of you are not living the kind of family life that is preparing you for God's kingdom. And if you don't repent and reorder your whole family life, you simply won't make it into the kingdom. I mean that. It is life and death for all eternity. That's about the most sobering thing Mr. Armstrong ever wrote, as far as I'm concerned. It really shows how toweringly important this subject really is. God's people are about to become God beings, sons of God the Father, the bride of Jesus Christ. And God is love. We are about to become love. And God has given us the wonderful, incomparable blessing and opportunity to learn how to become love by letting us experience family life today, day by day by day. Let's take full advantage of that opportunity 
Our families should be saturated with love, dripping with love. The beautiful love of God, which is the law of God. We must be applying that perfect family law, the same law that's going to create whole nations of families like the tomorrows in just a few short years. Love your family. Love your family. Build your life around your family. Don't let anything come before that after God. And let God use your physical family and his wonderful, very elect spiritual family to prepare you for his eternal family. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that is it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Herbert W. Armstrong. Think of it. The glorified Christ coming in all the splendor, the supernatural power and the glory of God Almighty coming to save mankind alive, coming to stop escalating wars, nuclear mass destruction, human pain and suffering, coming to usher in peace, abundant well-being, happiness and joy for all mankind. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.